0: All right, now we're down to the last Tuesday. And two more days. Uh, only thing due today is the third article review. If you, have, if you have that paper copy, of course, I'll take it now. Otherwise, you can submit it online on uh, D2L through 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. I hope to have that and everything else. I've been going through the other articles and the homeworks, and I put a few grades in. I hope to have all of the rest of that back for you tomorrow. So the only thing you should be waiting on uh, with the final exam would be homework eight and the last quizzes if you hadn't if you hadn't taken them so I hope to have everything else back to you hope to have everything else back to you tomorrow morning if everything goes well and then tomorrow homework eight is due which covers the last two chapters and there is the quiz that I mentioned last time the quiz will be again a list of twelve objects and you put them in order of distance starting with the sun and working your way outward towards the most distant object in the solar system. Um, Quiz 7 is chapters 15 and 16, which we've now covered. I've left it available what it was through the final exam, but you can take that any time now. We've covered all that material. And then the iTunes quizzes are up and available as well, again, through uh, through the final. So you can take those right before the final, right after the final, as long as you complete them by by the end of that day, end of that day. And then if you're doing corrections for exam four, those would be due on the final exam day as well, which is the 27th of June or Thursday. So we've got everything up on the board now and it's almost, almost done, almost through. We just started and we're almost done. Um, the other thing I put up here is, I was gonna print out something, it just didn't seem like there was quite enough information to bother printing, so I wrote it up on the board for you for the final exam. So final exam will be in three parts gigantic final exam, right? No. About twice the size of a regular exam. It will be a little bit longer. Part 1 is 100 points, is questions from exams 1 through 4. So make sure you, even if you didn't do the corrections, make sure you go through, know what you missed, and know those questions, because what I typically do is take the questions pretty much right off those exams. I might make some slight modifications if I thought something was confusing, but the question is it's going to be there. It might be changed in form a little bit, but it's that same material. So if you know the material from those four exams, that's what you need to study for the first part of the course. You don't need to go back to the textbook. You don't need to go back to the lecture notes or anything else for the first half of the final. That'll all be old material that you've already covered on an exam. It necess- could, could have been on a quiz, but doesn't even necessarily have to be on a quiz. It will have to have been on the exam. So there's something I didn't test you on. On previous things from chapter three, you're not going to get tested on it in the final. Again, if it's not on one of those exams, you're not going to see it. So make sure you have your exams and go through and look at what you got wrong so you're comfortable comfortable with that. Um, It's going to be the same length as a regular exam. So it's not going to be any longer than the other exam. So, you know, whatever it was 12 multiple choice, 10 true false, you know, however, whatever it worked out. But each point will be worth double, each question will be worth double. So they'll be double weighted, that makes it 100 points instead of 50. So true-false will be worth 2 points, multiple choice will be worth 2 points, fill-ins will be worth 4 and essays will be worth 8 instead of half of that as the previous. So that'll be 100 points. And then part 2, again 100 points, is questions from the last three chapters, the stuff we haven't covered. So that'll be 16, 17 and 18. Again, the same length as the regular exam and double the amount of points. So worth a little bit more there. Um, But the same, same number, you're not going to get any more questions. I'm not doubling the number of questions unless somebody really wants me to. No? I didn't think so. (laughs) I figured fewer questions, but to get it up to the points that I've specified, I just double the number of points. So, uh, each question with double points, it'll be the same length. So essentially, you're taking two exams at once. You'll have the full two hours to do that. And knowing how you've done on the previous ones, usually you're done in less than that. So I expect that people will be done in an hour to an hour and a half. If you need all two hours, you're more than welcome to, welcome to take it. And then part three is ten points. I'll come up with a few questions. This is where I can pick anything from any place else in the course. I may pick up a few other questions and throw in some extra credit questions for you. So since you don't have a chance to make up anything or you know, uh, anything else after it. credit should be from the pictures of the day. Oh. There might be some of those. You do all of them. No, there might be some of those. There might be a question about a lab. There might be a question about this or that, you know. Maybe a little mixture of everything. Maybe, oh, I know. Yes? You should do the extra credit questions about you. Extra credit questions about me? Yes. OK. To see what we learned in this class about the professor. I didn't teach you much about me. I know. Give you the extra credit one I gave last semester. They didn't like that one. Actually nobody got, got all, nobody could get all 11 it was amazing even though my wife and two my two oldest daughters could mm-hmm. I was just trying to come up with something different so I said how many of the 11 Disney official 11 Disney princesses can you name since I got three girls I said how many and there's <laughs> now you're going to do it uh, Cinderella Jasmine <laughs> I know, but she's officially classified as as that. Alright, well let's do picture of the day for today. And nice picture of Mars taken by the Curiosity rover here. And you see the rover itself in the foreground. Looking out, the camera's looking out at the surface of of Mars. Very reddish color uh, due to uh, oxygen trapped in the atmosphere. So it's really uh, oxygen uh, oxidizes the metals in the crust and makes them a little rusty color. So you get this reddish color for the, for the surface of the planet. This is a really nice panoramic view so it's, you're only seeing a tiny portion of it as you span it around. It's really an incredibly detailed p- scenery of Mars and really doesn't look all that different than parts of Earth. Looks like right? Looks, looks, like like a, a looks like a desert out there. And, and essentially Mars is. It's a very dry uh, desert, But it doesn't look that different. You know, if I just showed you a picture here, and probably could take a picture of something in the desert that would look a lot, that would look a lot like this. So the planets don't, and same thing with pictures of Venus. I mean, the planet's surfaces don't look all that different. I mean, you're just expecting some little creature, some little lizard desert creature to come creeping out of behind from behind one of the rocks at some point. So it doesn't look all that different than you know, parts of the Earth. Now if you go, actually there's a link down below this, oops, where was it? If I can find it. Where it says there's a interactive version and you can click on that and if you do that you end up with this one. And where are we? Let's put this to full screen. And you can actually here, you can actually pan around and zoom in a little more so if you want to look in, you know, there's some of the tracks. Um, And you can actually zoom in and look I mean, amazing the resolution and the detail we're getting. Getting there. You can see the tracks where the rover had driven there. Uh, rocks, and there's just some of the rock samples in very high very high resolution, very high, very high amount of detail. And if you want to, you, know, you can sort of study them here independently. How far? That's about how far it goes in. You can see it's starting to get to the edge of the resolution there. It's starting to blur a little bit. But really, getting amazing detail from Curiosity there and allowing us to really study Mars in much more detail than had ever been possible before. So that's something you can play with. Uh, Curiosity is actually heading out in the distance. Where is it? There it is. It's heading towards this mountain out in the distance. This is Mount Sharp. And what this is, is this Curiosity is actually inside a crater. It's inside a very big crater. And the craters, when something impacts into the surface, like when you throw a rock in the water, right? Water splashes right back up in the middle. Well, the same thing happens when a crater, when a big meteor impacts. It smashes down, and then material, actually rocky material, will pile back up in the middle. So this mountain out here in the distance, Mount Sharp, is actually in the middle of the crater. So it's not a mountain in terms of our uh, mountains that we're used to, but it's a mountain in terms of the impact from this gigantic Give you an idea of the crater. I mean, you think about the rover being, you know, a decent-sized car size. You know, it's a very big impact crater there, and we're just seeing, we're studying the floor of that crater, and that's what Cur- Curiosity is in the process of exploring, and is heading towards this mountain uh, to reach it. Is it next year or the following year? It it's moves very, very slowly, and will then start to explore that explore that mountain and try to study that a little bit a little bit more. So that's where it's, where it's on it's way to. So. Question? Questions? Wait, what kind of batteries do they use? Is it powered like solar? It's solar powered, yeah. It's solar powered and that's one of the things that happened to one of the other rovers is that it got stuck. And it got stuck so that it's solar panels couldn't be pointed towards the sun and it ended up completely draining the batteries. So there were three rovers that have been landed, two of them are still active. So do they put like, solar panels on like, all around the rover, or is it just on the top part, just, just in case? It has like, direct, like you've seen like with the space stations, where they can direct the, they have the panels that kind of stick out, they have panels, and they usually don't end up in the pictures, so they're okay. they're set out of the pictures, but there's just regular panels, but they're, they're directable, so you can direct them towards the sun to get the maximum amount, if you just put them, Yeah. um, Well, it didn't flip over. It got stuck. I'm trying to remember if it got stuck with a rock stuck it, or it got stuck in a hole where it just couldn't get out. And eventually, trying to get out, it drained the batteries because they couldn't readjust everything to point towards the sun all the time. So it didn't flip. Didn't actually flip over. They don't move fast enough probably to really flip over. I mean, these things move about a football field a day. So they're not moving very fast. But if you get stuck in a certain orientation, then you can only d- adjust the you can only adjust them so much. adjust them so much, adjust the solar panels so much. Okay. that? OK. anything else? Alrighty, Well, let's go back to. Let's go back to chapter 17. And we should finish up chapter 17 today and then possibly get started on 18. Uh, my goal is if we have enough time to go ahead and start on 18 and then that way tomorrow I have to finish chapter 18 and I have a rel- today's lab is, rel- is a little longer one uh, using Starry Night. Tomorrow should be a little bit shorter. Uh, talking about life in the universe. Uh, So I'm hoping that we can get that all done and just be be all done tomorrow. And then give you, if you need any extra time to make anything else up, you'll have that. And if not, you'll just be done early. So hopefully that's how how things go. But we'll see what happens here as we finish up chapter 17. So we were looking at the early universe uh, last time. And I sort of got to this slide and I said I'll stop and cover this tomorrow cuz I didn't really want to get into it into it too much at that point but we had been talking about the shape of the universe you know what the shape was what the density of the universe is and when we talk about density we tend to think of the density of matter you know how much matter there is in the universe so all the stars and all the planets all that mass but there's also an energy there's also a density of energy or radiation and very early on in the universe this is the time plotted here. Is the times after the Big Bang in years? So this would be 10 years, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000. Each of those goes up by a factor of 10. A billion years, 10 billion years. So we're out to into this range right now. You know, 10, a little over 10 billion years. And as the universe expands, the densities of things like matter decrease. Right. If, if there's no new matter being created, if all the matter that was there formed during the Big Bang, as the universe gets bigger, the density is going to get lower and lower. There's not as much matter to fill. The volume is increasing, but the amount of matter is staying the same. So the matter density will decrease and it will start off as something incredibly dense, very dense, and slowly drop down and discontinually drop down as the universe expands radiation the density of radiation how much energy there is in the universe will also drop so at some point these two cross these two cross so here's where the how much matter there was in the universe here's how much energy radiation there was in the universe the radiation is dropping a little bit faster so at some point they're going to cross and that's when the universe goes from being dominated by radiation as it was for the first you know, almost 100,000 years to being dominated by matter. Most of the universe being dominated by matter. Now you'll see there's one more line here. There's also a dark energy density. Doesn't mean very much over here. It's an incredibly small amount, very, very low density. So it doesn't really mean much in the radiation dominated era. In the matter dominated era, it starts to become closer to these. And as we get to more current times, it actually becomes the dominant. So this dark energy is what has been proposed to explain the fact that the universe is not slowing down. Recall that the universe is expanding. If it's expanding and everything's pulling on each other, it should slow down. Whether it slows down enough to stop that collapse, to stop the expansion and start it collapsing, is one question, but gravity should be slowing all those things down. We're fine to find that that's not the case, and that's what dark energy is there to explain. Dark energy is the explanation as to why things are accelerating, why the universe is actually expanding faster now than it was billions of years ago. And the dark energy continues to become more and more important, so that means that this expansion would then take over. This expansion would not only accelerate, but would begin to accelerate even faster. So you get the expansion not only increasing, but the universe would continue to expand uh, at a much, much quicker rate. So that's kind of what this is showing you here. The densities of things like matter and radiation are dropping very quickly. The dark energy doesn't work that way. The dark energy is really just constant. Just a constant density throughout the universe. So as the universe gets big enough, the dark energy takes over and is sort of that pressure. That pressure that's pushing everything apart. So instead of just expanding and slowing down in the expansion as we would normally expect under just gravity, it is actually accelerating and going faster and faster. So that's where we were finishing up yesterday. And next I wanted to talk about how we formed some of these, how we formed things. This might look a little familiar. Hopefully it looks a little familiar. We looked at this when we talked about the sun. Um, The proton-proton chain, combining protons together. Or here in this case in the early universe it might have been protons and neutrons, but combining the different elements together and taking hydrogen atoms and smashing them together in this pattern to form helium atoms. So hydrogen would be the first thing that would formed after the Big Bang. Simplest atom, it's the easiest thing to form. You're just forming protons and electrons and you would have had this big soup of protons and electrons early universe everything collapsed very very still very very close together essentially the universe is like a giant star so within that giant star with temperatures of you know tens of millions of degrees then nuclear fusion can occur and you can take those protons and you have enough, ener- you have enough energy to sma- and a density to smash them together and to take hydrogen and form helium atoms that's about where things stopped in this star, in this you know, universal star, when the universe was behaving like a star. It was expanding very quickly, so it only had a short amount of time to be able to undergo this process, and then it would have expanded and cooled off to the point where the nuclear fusion would no longer be able to take place. So the universe would have cooled off too quickly, so we would have been left with, after the Big Bang, just hydrogen, and a bit of helium that had been able to form in, in that very early time. But the process you're seeing is very much similar to what we saw early on in the, histor- in, the, in, the form, in the solar energy that we talked about. Now, the deuterium, most of the deuterium disappears as soon as it's formed. Deuterium, if you recall, was hydrogen with a proton and a neutron. Almost all of it was formed into helium as soon as it it was created. Deuterium fuses at a much lower temperature. It only takes a couple million degrees. Instead of 10 million degrees, it only takes a million or two. So it's at a much lower temperature. So most of the deuterium was was gone and made into helium. And that was, I'm going to go back one step here for a second. That deuterium is right here. So most of that, very quickly, as soon as it it is created, it almost immediately jumps into becoming helium. But deuterium can't be formed in a star. Yes, it does, right? It's in the proton-proton chain. It forms deuterium. But stars last for a much longer time, so any deuterium that does form is going to be converted to helium. There won't be any deuterium that's just created in a star. So any deuterium that we see around today must be around from the beginning of the universe. It's not going to be able to be formed in a star and then get back out to the rest of the universe. So there's no way to do that. So deuterium is one thing that we can see when we look and find deuterium. It's one thing that is only formed from the very early history of the universe. So. Most of the deuterium that was formed then even was immediately formed into helium, but because the universe was expanding so rapidly, it expanded, it expanded out and a little bit of that deuterium was left behind. And that's what we, the deuterium we still see today. So the deuterium that we find today um, on the Earth, in the Sun, in other stars, is all left over from the very earliest stages of the universe. Now when we formed this, we formed hydrogen, we formed helium through nuclear fusion, and there were electrons that formed. We didn't form atoms yet. We talked about it as hydrogen atoms being nice and simple, right? But the temperatures are so hot, when you're talking about things that are millions of degrees, that all the hydrogen is ionized. The electrons are here, the protons are here, they're not connected. The electrons are not orbiting around the protons, as they will later on once things cool off. Once they cool off to that temperature where everything can recombine, the universe suddenly goes from being dark, opaque, not allowing radiation to travel through it, to being transparent. So this is what we see. This is the first thing that we can ever see. This is what we call the photosphere of the universe, essentially. Photosphere of the sun is the surface that we see of the sun. It's the first place where we can begin to see uh, the surface of the sun. We can't see any deeper into it because it's opaque. It blocks out all of that light below it. But this is the first point out here in this grayish area. You have lots of protons, lots of electrons all moving around, but not combined together. Once you get inside, once the universe had cooled off enough, that the protons and electrons were able to combine to form hydrogen atoms, all of a sudden the universe went from being completely dark, uh, radiation unable to travel through it, to radiation being able to stream through the universe and being able to see it. So those are the first events that we can actually see. And the first thing that we can actually see in the universe is the cosmic background radiation that we mentioned last time. Uh, Penzias and Wilson uh, studying the emissions from the sky, trying to get rid of the noise in their radio telescope uh, detector, trying to get rid of that last little bit of noise. That's really seeing the very earliest event in the the universe that we can possibly see. So we're seeing the very earliest event. We can't see beyond it. No matter how much we want to look, there's not no way to see behind it. It blocks out all the radiation. Here is when radiation could first stream through the universe, and that's what we're seeing now greatly redshifted, greatly stretched out in wavelength to to become the cosmic background radiation. And it's called decoupling, that radiation and matter at the time were really uh, meshed together. You couldn't separate radiation and matter. They were the the same or two versions of the same thing. And at this point they decoupled from each other and now there's radiation and now there's matter and the radiation can stream through and the matter can begin to condense to form galaxies and galaxy clusters that we saw. Now, cosmic inflation, well, we're going to get into cosmic inflation here, but first we have to look at a couple of the different problems that we see that inflation actually solves. One is what we call the horizon problem. And that just means that, remember when we looked at the cosmic background radiation, it didn't matter where I looked at it. It didn't matter if I looked here or if I looked here or looked here or I looked here. It was always exactly the same. Now that means that if I'm looking this direction and I'm looking out 13.7 billion years, this light years this way and I'm looking out this way 13.7 billion light years that's 13.7, that's 13.7, that's going to be 27.4 billion light years there hasn't been time for those pieces to communicate with each other. There hasn't been time for them to become into, uh, to, for them thermally to be able to come in contact with each other. It takes a certain amount of time, right? If you take something that's hot, heat up a pan, heat up the water, it ta- and then turn off the stove, it takes some time for it to cool off. It takes some time for it to become in equilibrium. Well, these sections, these different parts of the universe, have no way to have even communicated with each other. So there's no way for uh, heat to have been transferred from one to the other to smooth things out. So one of the problems that exists in astronomy is the horizon problem. Why is the background universe so smooth? Because this part, part B over here, has no way of communicating with part A. The radiation part A has traveled 13.7 billion light eight billion years we can wait another 13.7 billion years, then B will finally get that information. So there has not been enough time for these to have smoothed out their temperatures. Eventually, right, you boil some water in a pan, you leave it sit, come back a few hours later, everything is all the same temperature now. The temperatures have evened out. We're talking about the universe, that's much bigger, takes a much longer time for things to have actually been in contact like that. So, big question is why is everything the same? Why is, the, is it the same in all directions? Even when they're greatly separated. The other problem that we have is the flatness problem. The universe looks very flat. And in order for it to have been this flat, to, to be this flat and to still to have survived, it has to be almost perfectly flat. It has to be almost right on that blue line. If it was a little bit off to one side or the other, if you had too much density, it would quickly collapse back down. Remember that would be the closed universe where you have a little bit more density. Or, as the universe is now, an accelerating universe would accelerate out and things would be widely, much more widely spread apart than they are. In order to see what we see today, the universe must have been so close to the critical density with a, what is it, a one followed by a point, decimal point to that, clo- you know, that kind of fraction. That's pretty darn close. It's got to be almost, you've got to be almost exact to have that. So why is the universe that flat? If it had much more than that, the universe would have easily Uh, closed, collapsed upon itself long ago, billions of years ago, or would have accelerated out. And then we wouldn't be seeing other galaxies and galaxy clusters because they'd have accelerated out so much faster and we would not see them anymore. So in order to explain what we see today, the early, the density right at the beginning when the universe formed right after the Big Bang had to be almost precisely, almost precisely that critical density had to be almost perfectly that critical density. So why does the universe look so flat? Could it just be coincidence? It's just so close to being flat that that's one of the problems. This and the horizon problem are two things that inflation actually helps to explain. So we can use this idea of cosmic inflation to explain, not it's more the inflation of the entire universe. So the universe expands greatly all of a sudden And that can explain both the horizon problem, can explain how these two objects that are two parts of the universe that are so far away were able to communicate with with each other at some point in the past, even though they couldn't now, and why the universe does look so flat. So what we can see here, here's here's the idea of inflation. Here's the size of the universe plotted on one side, size of the universe in meters. So you're going from right here at, you know, a uh, atom-sized universe, you know, nucleus, atomic nucleus-sized universe. Right after the Big Bang, it was incredibly small. And all of a sudden, in this tiny fraction of a second, between about 10 to the minus 43rd seconds. How many 10 to the minus 43rd seconds there are in the class? There's a heck of a lot of them here. I mean, 10 to the minus, you can't even imagine times that. That's that's faster than you can begin to imagine or be able to measure time. To 10 to the minus 35th seconds, so it's this incredibly tiny fraction of a second. In that tiny, tiny fraction, the universe went from being the size of an atomic nucleus to being the size of a universe. In that little tiny stretch, the universe expanded by, you know, 50 factors of 10. So it went 10 times bigger, 10 times bigger, 10 times bigger, 50 times in that tiny, tiny fraction of a second, and that's what we call, in, call inflation, because the universe is going from being very, very small, incredibly tiny, to being incredibly large in a tiny little fraction of a second. So not even one second, you're not even not even a billionth of a second, or a trillionth of a second. You know, you're still getting trillionth of a second is way too long trillionth of a second would be 10 to the, what would it be? 10 to the minus 12th seconds. We're 10 to the minus 35th. So incredibly, I mean a fraction that you can't even begin, begin to imagine how short of a time. Usually we're trying to imagine big things, right? Now we're trying to imagine very, very tiny things. How can you imagine that tiny fraction of a second? And in that time the universe goes from being incredibly small to being incredibly large. Now this does solve some of the problems that we had though. It does explain a number of things. And here's an example with a little balloon. If you got a little ant crawling along the surface of a balloon that's about 10 centimeters in radius, well, the universe looks very curved, right? You can easily see the curvature. You can go around and see, see where the universe is curved. If you've got a balloon, really, really stretchy balloon, and expand it up to a size, a kilometer in size, the universe looks a lot flatter, doesn't it? Not perfectly. That ant can probably walk around and eventually notice the curvature to it. But it looks much flatter. It also, if you, if you expand it, you've got a really, really stretchy balloon. It never pops. You're going to 10 to the 48th meters, universe sized balloon, right? You're blowing up the balloon to the size of the universe. And this ants, its little section of the universe, you can't tell the difference between that and, a f- and being flat. It's going to look perfectly flat in that stretch that it, can, that it can reach. So this little tiny bit here, here gets expanded out so greatly that the little portion now around our ant looks completely flat. It also means that this little tiny area what would, that would have been in thermal contact could have smoothed out all temperature variations early on. Now expanded out, so could there be other temperature variations? Yeah, but there's only a limited amount of the universe that we can see. We can't see the whole universe, that means. We're only seeing the portion of it right around us. Why? Because it takes light so much to travel. If the universe expanded so much that there is part of the universe that is 20 billion light years away, light hasn't had time to get to us from it yet. The universe is only 13 billion, 13.7 or so billion years old, so that light is still traveling. If there is light, there is material further out, we're still waiting for that light, for that evidence of it to get here. And we're going to be waiting a few more billion years if we're talking 20 billion light years away. So it explains why we can only see, a, we only see a little portion of the universe. It explains why the universe looks flat. We've just taken this little tiny stretch. We've stretched out that balloon. Instead of being 10 centimeters, made it a kilometer, made it hundreds of kilometers, thousands of kilometers, billions of kilometers in size. And all of a sudden, that same little stretch where that poor ant is, it looks very, very flat. So we can explain the densities. We're only looking at this little tiny, sec- only little tiny section and it's much easier. What the overall structure of the entire universe would be then beyond what we could see is good question and not something we could ever test scientifically. If we can't see it out there we have no way to get out there to do any kind of testing on it. You know, we can't test what's beyond there. We've got to, we have to physically wait for light to be able to come in. So, at we can add, you know, one light year's worth of knowledge of the universe every year, essentially. So in order to see any of these great, great distances that could be much further out, we've got to wait long, long periods of time. All right, so we started with large-scale structure in this chapter. And we're going to finish up with large-scale structure. How did we, for- how did we think we formed this? Uh, studies of the galaxies really seems to think that they never they could not have formed just from normal matter that it requires the dark matter in order to form the galaxies and the structures that we see today. So they've understood that we could not form them just from instabilities in dark matter. Why? Well before that decoupling time, remember decoupling was when the hydrogen started to combine? All that radiation, radiation and matter were were all one. So there was no time for big clumps of material to form. You didn't have time for gravity. Gravity was not strong enough in order to get clumps of material beginning to uh, form. So the background radiation would have destroyed clumps as they were forming and you wouldn't have had any, any grouping of matter. And also we know that there were not any big variations in the density. Because if there were variations in the density, if there was more matter in one direction, or more matter in another, or more energy in one, or more energy in another, we would see that in the microwave background. And the microwave background is incredibly smooth. <coughs> it's almost the same in every direction you look, and almost precisely the same. Not just close. Not just like, oh, it's, it's about three degrees. Well, it's three degrees, or it's 3.1 degrees. Or th- but we're talking you know to the um, you know, thousandths of a degree. It's almost exactly the same. We don't see many variations at all in this microwave background. And if there were variations in the density before that time, we would have seen it. We would see it in the microwave background radiation itself. So we could have had some densities. You could have had some little clumps. But because of the way the universe expanded, maybe 50 to 100 times the density of their surroundings. You're not forming things like stars, you're not getting things with that incredible density, much, much denser areas compared to the areas around them. Galaxies, um, very dense compared to the area around them, which is almost nothing. So, you would have had light concentrations, but not a lot. But the key here comes back to that dark matter, and again, something that we can't detect except through its gravitation. Dark matter is not affected by the radiation. So the radiation doesn't really want to do anything with the dark matter. And that means the dark matter is free to start clumping a long time before the decoupling. It only interacts gravitationally. It doesn't interact with the radiation. So it was unaffected by the radiation. So no matter how much radiation there was, how high the radiation density was, the dark matter could begin to clump, could begin to form, you know, Uh, clumps of of dark matter and what we estimate we'd see was something like this at one second after the Big Bang you would have had there's our little tiny bit of normal matter that's all our stuff all everything we've been studying in the course for till this chapter pretty much there's the dark matter in the red and it would have been spread out pretty uniformly throughout the universe so yellows being the normal matter clumps, red being the dark matter clumps, would have been scattered pretty uniformly. After about a thousand years, we haven't decoupled yet, so normal matter is still pretty much uniformly spread out throughout the universe, but the dark matter has begun to clump. You've begun to get a clump here, less here, more material here, and, you know, there's some material, there's some, there's some, that has begun to clump. After a hundred million years? So still relatively short. Really early on, the clump it began to clump even more. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. where do you think like, the dark matter like, originated from? Where, where did it originate from? I mean, right, we're, we're, we're talking about the Right. I just I I don't get it. It, it, Like the Big Bang created all these planets and all these galaxies, but how could it create matter that doesn't absorb any like radiation? Well, part of the problem is we don't understand that dark matter. So it could have created created regular matter. Maybe there are some forms of matter that we don't completely understand that just don't interact with radiation very don't interact with radiation very much. Neutrinos were one example, right? We had neutrinos; they don't they don't interact with they they rarely interact, and dark matter may be similar. It might interact on very rare occasions, and that's something people are st- looking for. But it's probably just another form of matter that was able to be for, to be to have formed early on, and I said, one of the other th- possibilities is that our theory of gravity is wrong. Maybe dark matter doesn't even exist. Maybe gravity behaves differently in these very dense structures early in the universe. Maybe it behaves differently on very large scales to explain the things that we see that we're attributing to dark matter. You know, maybe gravity is actually different and this, is not, this might not be correct. You know, come back and take the course again in five or ten years. You know, different things now than I would have given you five or ten years ago you know, five or ten years now. But likely, just I mean, to answer, try to answer your question, was just that it would have been another matter that would have formed like the regular matter. You know, We don't, under, we don't have a deep enough understanding of it for really to really be able to give you a good a good answer to why it created some matter that doesn't interact with radiation. Or why there are different types. But normal matter, which is only this tiny fraction, is just what we're used to. That's everything here. That's us, that's the tables, that's the building, that's the earth, that's the sun. That's all the planets, the stars, everything we've studied, the galaxies, everything we've studied. And I yeah. So there are millions and billions of planets and stars out there. Mm-hmm. I think it's very likely that there's some kind of some kind of life. That's going to be our next chapter, too, but we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next chapter. But I would say, yes, just to answer. Very, very likely that there probably is something out there, just with how, especially with how many planets we're now finding. We now know I mean, one of the big questions was, how often do planets form? We didn't have a good idea on that until relatively recently. So, you know, if planets form very rarely, then that made a big difference if planets were a rare thing in the, in the universe. But now we know they're pretty common. I mean, we have detected, I should have looked up the last numbers, but it was like eight, eight, 900, planets have been, eight 900 planets have been detected now. So, there's a, that, this is what we've, that's what we've been able to detect, and that's only very special cases that we can detect. So if we're detecting eight or 900, how many are really out there? Know, there's probably you know, billions upon billions of them and what are the odds and we'll look at that again in the next chapter and talk about what are the odds of life developing and I would say probably my personal opinion would be that it's probably pretty good that life has formed someplace else out there. Whether it's intelligent life or anything that's another good question That's some of the stuff we'll look at. Alright so back, back to the clumping of matter so we had, a, we had dark matter and we had normal matter so there's our galaxies and clusters forming down in here and there's this great dark matter halo that explains all the motions within that cluster, helps keep that cluster gravitationally bound together, which it wouldn't be otherwise if it were not for this dark matter. Those clusters would fly apart. They're moving so, galaxies are moving so fast that they would eventually or very quickly, astronomically speaking, fly apart. So here's a simulation that's been done to show what the universe might look like if you start off very early on with a pretty much a uniform mixture of just material and you slowly let that collapse into galaxies and clusters of galaxies and because you have put a limit on it, you have boxed it into three dimensions, things tend to concentrate towards the center, but the overall structure Maybe looks a little bit like some of the images I showed you early on of the structure of the universe. You've got filaments. you've got walls, right? A great wall here, perhaps, of galaxies. You have a lot of voids, a lot of areas where there is very few get where there are very few galaxies. So you tend to get the formation that we see. This is a simulation using a dark matter universe. So you see what you're seeing is the visible light matter. but it's affected by the gravity of the dark matter, which makes up you know, many, many times what the, of, the, of the visible matter that we see. So we can actually form, simulations can form something rather similar based on our understanding of what we do understand of dark matter and using its gravitational effects to then study how the galaxies were able to clump together. Otherwise, without that dark matter, the simulations would show that it would take a much longer time for these galaxies to actually form. And we shouldn't have all these galaxies and clusters that we do have right now. There shouldn't be these galaxies and clusters. So they, should be, they shouldn't have yet had time to form but because we have the dark matter that was able to clump a little earlier, get us a jump start on forming these galaxies, and then its gravity sort of encouraged the formation of the galaxies and the galaxy clusters where the dark matter happened to clump together. And dark matter does not, again, does not interact with radiation. But it does interact with, through it, gravitationally. Meaning that there's tiny variations in the background, radiation. So this, this image looks like a little Easter egg or something, right? A little pastel Easter egg there. No, that's actually the entire sky. So you're looking at the entire sky here. Wrapped around, projected into a little oval like this. And you're seeing some areas where there's a little less intensity of the background radiation and some where there's a little bit more. But these are incredibly tiny fractions. So compared to what the exact temperature is, you're talking, you know, thousandths of a degree or less in variation. So one might be a thousandth of a degree brighter, hotter, one might be a thousandth of a degree cooler. You know, not a very big amount, but enough that we can study it and be able to try to understand and see, you know, where these clumpings would have begun to occur. We can see where the clumps started to to form in the universe, this dark matter, very, very early in the history of the universe. And that's something that we can see. We can see now. We can actually see these variations. We've gotten to the point where we can make radio measurements of the sky and of the background radiation, not just detecting it, but being able to measure it accurately enough that we can tell two thousandths of a degree or better how bright the sky is in different parts and we start to see that there's some variations. Certainly they're greatly magnified here to try to show you the differences between them. Uh, But it's a very, very small effect. And I think, does this one? Yeah. Here's a little better image of it. And the variations go from 300 microkelvins so 300 millionths of a degree on either direction. So we're talking you know, a fraction of a thousandth of a degree in temperature variations. So while it looks like, you look at this image, it looks like you've got really, really bright spots and really, really faint spots. It's only because the scale has been expanded so much. But there are some of those areas. We can see some brighter areas. We can see some darker areas. So the, matter te- the dark matter tended to clump here. And that we're seeing it in the microwave background. The one is just zoomed in looking at some of these areas. You can see where the, clumps are beginning, where the clumps had started to occur. We can see in much more detail. So we've been able to map the microwave background with such precision now that we can really begin to see the details of how things, how things worked early on in the universe. Whew. I guess that is the end of that. OK. Chapter 17. Alright, let me go through the summary here um, which starts off with, first of all we said that on the largest scales, talking hundreds of millions of parsecs, many hundreds of millions of light years, that the universe is homogeneous, it doesn't matter which chunk of the universe I grab, once, you know, 100 parsec square, or square cube that I'm grabbing, they all look about the same. Overall, they've all got about the same amount of matter in them. They've all got the same number of galaxies, roughly. Everything would be roughly the same. There'd be none that would have, boy, this one has all the galaxies, and boy, this one has nothing. They'd all be just about the same. The universe is also isotropic. Isotropic meaning that the universe is the same in every direction. So if I look out in this direction, I see galaxies. And if I look in this direction, I see. In the far distances I see similar numbers of galaxies and similar types of galaxies. So the universe is the same in all places and is the same in all directions. The universe began about 14 billion years ago. That was the Big Bang that we talked about and I showed you the video clip last time sort of trying to explain that a little bit. That's where it started. Where is it going to end? Well it's got two choices. It can either expand and expand and expand and never stop. If there's not enough matter or it'll collapse. If there's enough matter eventually the expansion would stop, gravity would slow it down and collapse it. What what happens depends on the density. Very high density universe will collapse, it's got a lot of matter, a lot of gravitational force to cause it to collapse. Or it will expand forever if the density is too low. There's not enough gravity there and everything expands forever. The borderline between those two is what we call the critical density the critical, at the critical density, it just barely expands forever. Just barely. Just makes it. So it's a borderline between those two. Either it expands forever or it collapses back down. There's one line right in the middle and that seems to be where the measurements put us right now. Now we looked at these last time again. A high-density universe was closed. Think of that as a sphere. The critical universe was flat like a piece of paper. The low-density universe was open, like a saddle. So, in terms of geometrical shape that we think of the universe, those would be the three ways to think about it. When we make measurements, we find out that the universe appears to be getting moving faster now. It should slow down. Right? We've got all this gravity. You know, our galaxy is pulling on all these other galaxies. They're moving away from us really quick, but our gravity is our still pulling on them. And that should cause them to slow down over time. But recent measurements have shown that they are actually speeding up and that galaxies are now moving even faster than they were billions of years ago, to close to 14 billion years ago. We mentioned the cosmic microwave background. I've talked to that about that a little bit today and last time. That's what's left over from the Big Bang. That's the remnant left over from this early explosion that formed not only the universe but all the space and all the time in the universe. And that's our remnant left over from it that we can still detect today. Right now, what we picked up today, the universe is dominated by matter, actually going into being dominated by dark uh, energy. And early on it was dominated by radiation. Radiation and matter, when, there, when, when radiation dominated, radiation and matter were linked together and eventually the temperature became cool enough that the protons and the electrons could combine together and radiation and matter decoupled as we say and that allows the energy to stream now stream through the universe so now we can actually see things we can actually see stuff in the universe so when you think about that that's what happens essentially in the sun at the photosphere all of a sudden we can see we can see the energy from the sun is now able to escape Energy further below that is trapped because the sun is not transparent down, down further. That's where we see the cosmic background radiation from. So the cosmic, cosmic background radiation is from this decoupling time. The, we talked about the horizon problem. Why are different parts of the universe that are so far apart know what the temperature of the other is so they know to all be the same temperature? How has it had time to cool off that way? in just 13 billion years when things are much further than that away. Why does the universe look so flat? Incredibly flat, I mean to within a very tiny fraction of a a perfectly flat universe. And inflation, cosmic inflation, actually can explain both of those. And think of that as that expanding balloon with the little ant again. The density of the universe that we measure looks like it's pretty much the critical density. We're right at that border between expansion and collapse. Most of that density is dark energy, two thirds of it. Dark matter is about one third. That doesn't leave much for, uh, for ordinary matter. So, you know, what, what we're made up of, what we've spent the whole class pretty much studying, is just a tiny fraction. Actually, it's about two thirds. Dark, dark matter is about 30%. And that leaves about 3% for ordinary matter. But we've really, till this chapter and a little bit on dark matter early, we've been studying about 3% of the universe. You know, 3% of the matter energy in the universe we've been studying in terms of stars and planets and galaxies and all that. We've been, that's what we've been studying, is just that tiny fraction. We're still trying to learn about dark matter, we still don't have a good handle on it. And dark energy is even more of a mystery. That's a relatively recent discovery that appears to exist. But again, because we can't really make good tests or measurements on them, it's very difficult to work with these. Structure of the universe, what do we see today? Um, We couldn't have come from just ordinary matter, just changes in ordinary matter. It requires something else. It requires the dark matter to have started to condense into clusters earlier. So the dark matter would have had to group earlier, and then that would have allowed, once the universe decoupled, once matter was now free to combine together, then that would allow for formations of the galaxies and the clusters and simulations that we look at show that, show that today. So, questions, questions?